Let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in tonight. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for our nation. I pray for wisdom and guidance for our leaders. I pray, Father, for your hand to be on this place, that we might live up to the legitimate functions that you have placed on our country, that we might further your kingdom in this world, your justice, your peace, your mercy, and your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you guys know the number. I think this is on your handout too, but if you want to text questions during class, we might have one or two on this topic. We have... Uh, Saved uh, some of, I mean, really all the topics I think have been good. In fact, let me show you our list. Uh, oh, actually, <laughs> before I do that, it's, I told you, you know, last week, we always have a theme. This is bad hair, Hillary, and bad hair day, uh, Donald. So this is our election update. And uh, I know, I'm just going to let that sink in for a minute. That's not the most flattering pictures. I also give you an update on the polling. We're not really here to talk as much specifically about who's going to win the presidential election as we are about biblically informed, engaging our culture in the public sphere. Uh, New York Times does a polling average, a national polling average, which means it may not reflect any of the polls, but it averages them all. Even after the debate, I think a lot of people thought that uh, Hillary would get a bump out of the debate. The New York Times national average is 45 Hillary, 41 uh, Donald, which is right where it's been. It really hasn't moved a lot in a while. Rasmussen, however, shows Donald Trump up 42, Hillary 41. So you know the polls can vary a little bit, but the national averaging is still right there in the groove. The, I also give you the Rasmussen uh, report on Americans who think that our country is on the right track, and it's at 29% this week, and you see a theme in that, that it's running down below consistently, and for a long time, below a third. Now, we tend to be a little bit cynical about any administration, but generally speaking, those don't bode well for the political environment. We really like to see those numbers get a little higher. This week had an exciting time when the vice presidential candidates had their uh, debate or discussion or whatever. I don't know how much of a debate it was. But the one thing that I really, is listening to all the pundits and all the commentators and reading the news outlets, the one thing I took out of this was most people are asking this question. Can we reverse the tickets? <laughs> and can we just vote for one of the vice presidential candidates for president? So <laughs> I guess you guys are sympathetic with the rest of the country on that. But it was interesting. We're getting to know the candidates a little bit. Here are our list of topics, by the way, that we have covered. Last time we had a special guest, David Prater, our district attorney, and I know that you enjoyed hearing from him because the point of that was how to be a Christian in the political realm. Here are a couple of quotes from David that I'll remind you of that I really liked. I know him well, and I knew that he would give you some insights into what it's like to be Christian and some of the challenges in the politics. He said, I'm not a politician, I'm a Christian in politics. That's very reflective of the theme of what we're trying to talk about, is engaging our culture as Christians for the good of our culture and for the truth of the gospel. The second thing he said was, David uh, runs as a Democrat, and he said, you know, it's, I'm not necessarily a Democrat or a Republican, he said, I'm of the party of the Lamb. In other words, I represent Jesus Christ before I represent a party or a party platform. So I hope you enjoyed that. It was great hearing from him. Uh, we have a couple left, and I saved uh, the more of the social issues for the end. We just kind of grouped things together. And so in this lesson, 
we are going to talk about uh, gender, sexuality, marriage, and family. And obviously, that's a broad topic. We're going to hit some of the highlights of biblically informed speaking into the public square on these issues. I've actually seen all of these signs recently, by the way. And I know that this, the gender issues are the ones that tend to be in the news at the moment. And so I just thought you'd watch for that. You'll see those coming soon. Uh, definition of terms. Let me talk just a little bit about, because they're, it's very easy to talk about these kinds of issues and talk past each other because we're using different definitions for the same words. And so I'm going to tell you what, how I'm going to use these words. First is I'm going to talk about a person's sex as their biological or physical characteristics. So you can be male or female. Those are biological and physical characteristics. You're born with a sex, a biology. The word gender is typically used, and I'm going to use it this way, if someone's self-understanding of maleness or femaleness. Now, you're going to ask me, that, that is an inherently ambiguous statement I just made, but this is kind of the common way gender is understood is it's, uh, it's not the same as your biology necessarily, it's how you understand it. Now, I'm going to give you a biblical perspective on it, and, but I want to separate those two because as we discuss what's going on in the public sphere, people are going to use those two words to mean slightly different things. So gender is one's understanding of maleness, femaleness, or other. I told you before in a uh, series that we did on sexuality. So there's a Wednesday night series we did on sexuality. So I won't go into as many details, but I think the last time I checked on Facebook, there were 50 some gender options. So gender is something in our culture that has become a very fluid term. I want to talk about uh, the idea of same-sex attraction. Uh, so same-sex attraction is basically having a feeling attraction towards someone of the same sex. If those feelings are strong enough and persistent enough over time, we might say then that someone has a same-sex orientation. In other words, is oriented toward the same sex. Then the word gay, I'm going to tell you how these words are typically used because I want to be a little bit more precise in our discussion. The word gay means then someone with a sexual orientation toward the same sex, but who identifies with that lifestyle. That's typically the way the word is used, is someone who engages in that lifestyle and identifies themselves by their sexual orientation. So that's typically the difference between a same-sex attraction, a same-sex orientation, and being gay. And then finally, the word transgender is a little bit different. Transgender means someone whose experience of their gender, maleness, femaleness, or pick any of the other 52 choices, is not in harmony with their biological sex. So everything I just talked to you about are slightly different ideas, and so I want to try to be a little precise so that when we talk about it, we know what we're talking about. Okay? So transgender... It would be the uh, incongruence is a term that's often used or the distress between a, a perceived difference in one's experienced gender and one's biological sex. Being gay would be being identifying oneself as defined by sexual relations with the same sex. Orientation means I feel a persistent desire for someone of the same sex and then same-sex attraction. 
So those are how we're going to use some of those words in this study. And I think you're gonna see this as nuanced. And if you get nothing else out of this, I want you to understand that this is not something where you can just slap people into easy categories. That's actually not true of anyone. But in this subject, it's very easy in our polarized society to begin to lump people into boxes and just say, I'm gonna label you with this word and therefore you fit in this box. And I'd like you to get a sense that this is a little more nuanced and we need to talk to people as people rather than labels. So how is the biblical perspective on this? Again, we've done another series on this, so I'm not gonna go into it in huge detail unless you have questions, but I wanna give you the basic biblical idea, the basic biblical blueprint for gender, sexuality, marriage, and family. It begins in Genesis chapter one. God created humankind, God created man, but I like this translation a little better. It actually captures the Hebrew sense of the word. He created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So we're all created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. So you see very early on the idea of a distinctness. In fact, in Genesis, you're gonna see this idea, by the way, of separation, of distinctness, is a theme that runs all through creation narrative in Genesis. And so you're gonna see God's image, and you're going to see we're all created in God's image, we're created distinct, and then you'll also see we're created to be complementary. So God blessed the male and female and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So you begin to see a mission, a purpose. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and every creature that moves on the ground. So you see God establishes very early in the order, the biblical order, the idea of being image bearers of God and being created separately, but in a very complementary sense. Let's move on. Chapter 2. The Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. By the way, this translation is very uh, literal. It's a very good translation. I'm using it because most of the time they use the word helper. Helper in, our, in English, modern day English, really doesn't capture the idea. Companion does a better job. In other words, God is creating a companion for the man who will correspond, who is not the same, but complements them. And so you see God's idea, first of all, of uh, gender is that there is maleness and femaleness. You see that they're different, but they're complementary. You see two sexes. You see God creating also then the, the family. You see marriage. This is an institution. By the way, marriage and the family are the first institution that God sets forth to humanity. He says, this is why a man will leave his father and mother unite with his wife and they will become a new family or they will become one flesh. But the idea is this is God instituting marriage and family. So he's gonna define the interaction of these two sexes. And then you'll see this idea of family then carried on throughout the rest of the Bible. In Exodus 20 is the 10 commandments. So it's happening much later. It says, honor your father and mother you may live a long time in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So what the Bible's saying is you see God establishing the two sexes, you see his purpose for them, you see them coming together in marriage between a male and female, a man and a woman, and then you see the family sanctioned by God. Now I'm not telling you that God is just sanctioning a family of mom, dad, 2.3 children. Families can be more extended, and in the ancient world they were, with aunts and uncles, etc., living together. But the basic family unit that God institutes, uh, you'll see it run all through the scriptures. 
In fact, you'll see it to be the most powerful image of our relationship with God is the family image. There are many other images that are used, metaphors to use to explain how we relate to God, but the family image is one of the most powerful ones. In the New Testament, and you're going to see this all through the Old and New Testament, in the New Testament, you're going to see things like being adopted as children into God's family. You're going to see the church as the bride of Christ. You're going to see a lot of family language because God is going to take off on the order that he created to model a relationship with him. So the idea of family, marriage, family, male, female, is embedded throughout the Bible. So that's kind of the biblical plan or the biblical map. Now let me give you one little caveat before we move on. That is not to say, and the Bible does not say this, that if you are not Man, woman, 2.3 children, you're doing something sinful. The Bible also contemplates the idea of singleness. In fact, the New Testament holds up the idea of singleness as being a good thing. In other words, God blesses things other than the family, but God's basic unit of society is the family. Does that make sense? Now, I want you to think that if you're not in a family, Man, woman, 2.3 children, two-car garage, soccer on Saturday. If you're not doing that, well, then there's something wrong with you. The Bible is not necessarily saying that at all. Okay? There are definitely other arrangements, but this is the core family arrangement that God sets forth. Well, how is this playing out in our culture? How does this biblical idea mesh with the cultural ideas? Not well. Uh, this is a chart I put on your handout, and I'm picking on this because it's really easy to find data. We could talk about transgender issues, we could talk about same-sex orientation, but I'm picking on this one issue because it's really easy to find data, and I think it's something we're all pretty familiar with in the past few years. But basically the idea of same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage shows an interesting trajectory, and it's one that many of these sexual and gender issues are following. Same-sex marriage, this is the number of people basically who are in favor of that. In 2001, this is a Gallup poll, I'm gonna give you some Pew Research data that corresponds very much, uh, very similar data to this. The numbers are almost exactly the same. Pew Research Foundation did a study in 2001, so go back 15 years, and basically asking people, are you in favor of same-sex marriage? And here's how it turned out. 57% in 2001 said, no, I do not support that. And 35% said, yes, I do. Fast forward, same Pew research in uh, modern, modern times, it literally flips. It flipped around to 50 uh, Five, four, 37 against. Almost literally flipped around in 15 years. And so public opinion has moved 180 degrees on this issue. In uh, 2014, there were 183,000 same-sex marriages, weddings. That's 0.3% of all marriages. 55% of those were women. 45% of those were men. Going beyond... The issue itself, as you know, this became settled law in the United States because of a Supreme Court decision. And so public opinion mattered, but it was not essential to the changeover. I wanted you to see the trend with the biblical ideas, cultural ideas, 
and how the culture has moved 180 degrees in a relatively short period of time. Again, that's not how this became law, and I want to talk about that a little bit later, but you see the movement there. Well, today, you have other issues. You see, we've moved on to other issues. For example, one that's in the news or has been in the news is if you have a conscientious objection to participating in things that you believe are morally wrong. I think, for example, baking a cake at a same-sex wedding. I think that's one that was in the news. There are others. But base, and it doesn't have to be on this issue. I'm just going to stay with this issue because the data is really good. There's a lot of uh, surveys that give you an idea of how Americans are thinking about this. But that issue, should people have to participate in things on which they have a religious objection? Interestingly enough, uh, this is another Pew study, and it's very recent. That's this year. 48% of Americans say that you should be able to refuse to participate in something, like a, a same-sex wedding if you're a baker or whatever it may be, a photographer, I forget what the case was, but you should, 48% of Americans say that you should be able to not participate in that. 49% say you should be coerced to do that because it is discriminatory, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. I don't know if that surprises you, but that's how American public opinion moves on that issue. Let's move to the bathroom issue. I cannot believe that the national press, the NCAA, everybody in the world is talking about bathrooms, and yet that is where we seem to have centered our gender discussion recently. Well, what do people think about that? Should people who are transgendered be able to use the bathroom that they choose, the gender with which they identify, or their biological uh, sex? In other words, the biology that they're born with. 46% of Americans say that people should use the restroom that corresponds with their sex, their biology. And 51% say that people should be able to use the restroom that corresponds with their gender identification. Does that surprise you a little bit? That's 2016 numbers, and this is the general consensus from a reputable source of how Americans are thinking about issues of gender and sexuality and marriage and family. And so when you take the biblical perspective, God's plan, the biblical idea of what is good for society, what is true, God's will, and you mesh it up against the cultural ideas, the answer there is, is that the biblical idea is in the minority. And that's something I also want to point out to you because this may be a surprise, and if you get nothing else, I want you to really think about this. Russell Moore, I really agree with this, completely agree with this statement, and I believe that the data supports this statement. He says, if we were ever a moral majority in America, we are no longer. As the secularizing and sexualizing revolutions were on, it is no longer possible to pretend that we, when he says we, he, he's actually meaning a certain subset of Christians. So think evangelicals, uh, think Christ followers, that we represent the real America, a majority of God-loving, hardworking, salt-of-the-earth cultural conservatives like us. Accordingly, we will engage the culture less like the chaplains of some idyllic Mayberry and more like the apostles in the book of Acts. And in our next series, I want to talk a lot about that idea but more like the apostles in the book of Acts. We will be speaking not primarily to baptized pagans on someone's church role, but to those who are hearing something new, maybe for the first time. We will hardly be normal. You should not expect to be considered normal in our culture, and you can see these statistics show you that 
that the biblical worldview is now tipped statistically to being not the norm in our culture. He said, but we should never have tried to be. There are a couple of interesting things in this statement. Again, like I said, I believe that it is statistically accurate in America. Now, sitting in the middle of America, we don't quite feel it as much yet, but trust me, it is coming. The other thing he says is that we are typically think when we take the biblical worldview into the public square, because 73% of Americans still identify themselves as Christian, we tend to think of ourselves as talking to people who think like we think. Well, just the few statistics I've shown you tell you that that's not actually the case. We are more and more likely to be talking to people who do not think biblically at all. And so we'll be hearing this for the first time. I think that presents some real opportunities. It also presents some challenges. But the point I'd like to make out of that is that Christians are in a minority on a number of issues around gender, sexuality, marriage, and family in our nation. And so the moral revolution around gender and sexuality issues continues to roll on. And I want to talk about that moral revolution for just a minute. Uh, I want to talk about the consequences of that. If you look over the last 40 years or so, really back from the 60s, 60 or 65, you're going to see some trends that are not healthy trends. Our suicide rates are increasing in every age group over this time period. Uh, depression rates are up about 400% in the last 25 years. Prescriptions are up at 400% for antidepressants in America over that time period. Now, I'm not gonna tell you necessarily that I'm not gonna spend a lot of time trying to say the sexual revolution, the moral, it's really a moral revolution, is directly causing these things, but I wanna put some correlations together because I think it's had a deleterious effect, a negative effect on our society, but I think it's been devastating to our children, absolutely devastating to our children. Uh, this chart, as you'll see, is there, there are a lot of ways to slice this, and the Census Bureau slices this data a lot of ways, but I thought this would be just pretty easy to understand in graphic. The number of children over time who are living only with their mom. So single-parent families, uh, and this just happens to be single-parent families where they're living with the mom. But look at that chart and look at that trend over the decades. That is an alarming increase. It is, that is inevitably going to cause social instability, and that's what we are seeing. Let me give you some more Census Bureau information. Out of the 74 million children in America, only 42 million of them lived with their biological parents. That means that about 45% of children in America do not live with mom and dad and 2.3 children and two-car garage and soccer on Saturday. So that is almost half the children in our country do not have that biblical template for the nuclear family. In the African-American community, it is devastatingly worse. Only 18% of children live in that mom, dad, children, biological parents in the same household. And so you see those statistics as, and I think, casualties of the moral revolution. And I think there are other reasons for this, but I think you track these things together and you see that some of the sexual and moral issues, particularly the ethics of consent, and I'll talk about that more in a minute, have really uh, just devastated our children. You'll see its effects in other ways as well. 
in the Obergefell decision, which, in which the Supreme Court basically mandated same-sex uh, marriages are a right in America, a civil right in America, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in the dissent, uh, one of the things he said was this ruling, with which he disagreed, obviously, he's writing the dissent, opens the door for a variety of other things, one of which is polygamy. And so I just want you to think about that for a minute because you are seeing that being much more normalized in our culture. I mean, think about it. We have multiple reality TV shows about polygamous family arrangements. It's really fundamentally opening the door to completely redefine the family in a different way from the biblical worldview. And you're seeing that play itself out. You're also going to see a lot of really fringe things. I want to tell you two interesting things I read in the news this week. So this is just Terry's experience this week. And they are, they're both fringe kinds of things, but I'm, I have a contention to make about this. The first was, I read this in a British paper, actually. A, an Oklahoma mom was charged and arrested for incest recently. Now, it's a technical charge. Arrested for incest because she had married her daughter. That happened in Oklahoma, reported in the Telegraph in Britain. Now, I realize that's a bit of a fringe, fringe deal. The other was that, and this is not so fringe, is the sitcom Modern Family. I believe it aired last week, but if it didn't, it's, it's airing soon. Brought a character onto the show, an eight-year-old transgendered person, an eight-year-old girl who is playing a transgendered person, an eight-year-old girl who identified as a boy and began to integrate that into the cultural milieu of, of the modern family TV show. Now, both of those events are a little bit on the fringe, but here's my contention. If the statistics of the moral revolution show anything at all, they show this, that what is on the fringe today is going to be mainstream tomorrow in an astonishingly short amount of time. And so as you begin to see these things, you're seeing some seismic shifts in the cultural understanding of gender, sexuality, marriage, and family. And as the biblical worldview comes into that, I just want you to think about the idea that we come into that not as the dominant ideology in the public square. I think that's a good thing for Christians then to go engage that, but I think it's gonna mean that we'll do it in a little bit different way. Let me pause for just a second here and catch up with a couple of questions. Laura? Well, I had one question about this slide, just for clarification. This is percentages of children in our population. So as the population grows, it's not just the number that grows, it's actually the percentage. That is correct, okay. yes. Good, good clarifying question. That makes this statistic even worse than it looks. That's right. Because population is indeed growing. Okay. Um, do you know if the percentage for and against same-sex marriage, as you showed your, um, the percentages, does that track along political party affiliation lines? Uh, there, there are uh, more granular studies. Can you trace that along political affiliation? the general trends do indeed move with one's party affiliation. They don't match up exactly. But that data was sliced and diced in a lot of different ways. But for example, if you're independent, Democrat, or Republican, there are correlations with those results. Uh, yes, that's, it moves in the same directional way. 
you mentioned this, but I got a couple of questions about um, same-sex marriage and once it is legalized, what is there to prevent polygamy being legalized? How do we do that once that door's been opened? Yes, the, uh, there's so many factors in this, but fundamentally what Roberts was saying, Chief Justice Roberts was saying is he finds no particular legal barrier given that decision that one could exclude polygamy. Among other things, actually, I would add to that. The reason that you, you're, you're gonna start, I predict that you will begin to see challenges to make polygamy uh, legal, make that also a right. Because if you take, you've basically got marriage as one man, one woman. This was the situation before. Now you simply have marriage, one person, another person. So you've really disputed the man, woman part. Why not dispute the one part? And so I think we'll probably see that. And Justice Roberts believes, rightly or wrongly, that this decision provides a framework for people to challenge that. I think we will see that likely happen. I think you're basically going to see a, this moral revolution is not really fundamentally about same-sex issues or gender issues, although that is the tip of the spear right now. That's where the public debate happens. It's really about a redefinition of what does family mean and what is the core of our social fabric. And my point that I'd like to say is I think the data shows that these are dangerous experiments. I think we have some very powerful uh, truth, some very powerful compassionate things to say into our culture about what leads to a healthy society. I think God knows best about what leads to human flourishing and healthy uh, society. Um, I have a couple of other questions. I'll try to do them justice here. 50 years ago, divorce was not very socially acceptable, certainly not in the church world before we had no-fault divorce laws and other things. Now divorce is fairly acceptable in churches and socially, and we have accommodated the changes in the culture in our churches. Do we expect that all these gender identity and marriage changes will be accommodated in the church as the culture changes? Do we see that happening? Yeah, that's a great question because there are people who think that the way that divorce worked itself socially through our society and through, quote, the church. I'm, I'm going to actually take exception with that idea in just a second and say there's no such thing as the church. But Yes, there are people who think that gender and sexuality issues, redefinition of family issues, will work themselves to some kind of normative status within, quote, the church. Uh, I think that that will happen in certain, I don't know the right word to use, certain portions of Christendom, certain denominations. I believe that will work itself out in that way in certain portions of it. I think there is a substantive difference on those. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think the Bible's teaching on divorce is clear, just as it is clear on other things. But I do not, I think that you're going to see on this issue is that uh, you will always have a core of people, a core of the church who is going to hold fast to the truth. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that very well. That does not mean you're going to have a piece of the church that has never been divorced and has no same-sex attraction or anything like that. That's not the case at all. What you're going to see are believers who say, this is sin and this is not. And every one of the believers are going to say, I too have sinned in some way and I have repented of that. There will be other parts of, quote, the church who will say, there's nothing to repent of. 
So you, to some extent, I think you'll see uh, certain people merge their Christianity with cultural ideas. That's happened forever. It will probably happen somewhat on this issue. I don't think it will become as normative as divorce. That's a personal opinion, though. Um, you may want to wait uh, to talk about this, but so how do we vote? If we believe that we should legislate our values, then should we have legislation against adultery and divorce as we did 100 years ago? If we believe that we should have legislation against same-sex marriage, what's the difference? And should we vote those things or should we just stay home because it doesn't matter? Yeah. Well, let's get to that. That's a good, that's a good point. Let me talk to you about one more issue, and then I want to talk about a biblical response to this. Let's move on to, I want to talk about a very specific issue. I want to talk about the politics of gender. So I'm going to narrow this down quite a little bit. And I want to talk to you about the way this is being framed in America and how this is, in my view, going to impact the way that we want to advocate in the public square. The politics of gender issues, I think transgender issues, uh, equality, rights for transgendered people. I want to narrow in on that a little bit because the way this is being framed is basically non-discrimination versus religious liberty. Both of these ideas are embodied to some extent in our Constitution. We consider them constitutional ideas, obviously religious liberty, very blatantly so, and then non-discrimination as an idea although it's one that continues to be defined in different ways. Religious liberty is very specifically defined in the Constitution. But you're seeing these two ideas pitted against each other. I want to show you something really interesting. This is a, a Commission on Civil Rights issued a report to President Obama. A copy also goes to the Speaker of the House. This is from September of this year. This is an excerpt from the letter I can give you the whole, you can find this report online, and it's very interesting reading. Just don't do it late at night because you will fall asleep. But this is an excerpt from the cover letter from the chairman of the Commission on Civil Rights. This is not a unanimous recommendation, but it is indeed a majority recommendation. I want you to notice these two things. Here is what uh, the chairman is saying, that civil rights protections ensuring non-discrimination as embodied in the Constitution, laws, and policies are of preeminent importance in American jurisprudence. Once you see where the cultural uh, idea is going and the way this is being framed, because I do not believe that this is how Christians frame this issue. Basically what he's saying is, is non-discrimination takes a premier place and trumps any other constitutional right. You saw that play itself out uh, around the issues involving uh, really abortion, which we'll talk about next time, but also then the various same-sex marriage, and now you're seeing it in the gender issue, is it's been framed as not allowing, for example, let me just pick a, what I consider a, a pretty trivial example, but not allowing a, a transgendered person to use the restroom with which they identify their gender is violating their civil rights because it is discriminatory. What the Commission on Civil Rights is suggesting is that that is the premier right, not religious liberty. Religious exemptions goes on then to address the idea that, yes, uh, religious liberty is fundamental to our Constitution. Religious exemptions, which is how uh, our government has tended to handle this, we try to make sure we're non-discriminatory, but there is also this competing right 
for one to practice one's religion. And so they tend to make exemptions and compromise, make this work together. He's saying religious exemptions to the protections of civil rights based on classifications. Now look how big this has gotten. Race, color, national origin, sex, disability, sexual orientation, and gender identity, when they are permissible, significantly infringe upon these civil rights. What is this saying? It's saying that religious liberty is not compatible with the current understanding of non-discrimination and that non-discrimination should trump religious liberty. That is a monumental suggestion to our government, but it is the way these issues are being framed, is religious liberty being trumped by non-discrimination. So anything, you didn't have to go back very many years to not find several of the things that are in that list of protected categories or discriminatory categories that were not there before. And I predict in another 10 or 15 years, there'll be things in that list that are not there today. But the way this is being framed is basically discrimination versus religious liberty. The way it is being resolved in our nation is unfortunately, and I'm going to give you an opinion, but I feel pretty strongly about this. The way these tend to be resolved at the moment are fundamentally in the courts. And so what you basically have happening in a democratic society, you have basic social and moral issues being those values being imposed upon the nation by a handful of people. That's called an oligarchy. That's called the rule of the few. My view on that is, as Christians, is that this is not healthy for a democratic society. If you live in another country that is an oligarchy, then by all means you should operate that way. So I think that it stifles the opportunity to speak into the public square. And I think that's regrettable for us to see that these issues are being decided in that way. Now let me go on to say, I think as Christians, Romans chapter 13, being good citizens in our country, I mean, that's not our primary duty, but it is indeed a God-given duty, is that if laws are voted in, in our system of government, then that's going to happen. There are going to be laws that are voted in that Republicans don't like, that Democrats don't like, that Independents don't like, that Christians don't like, that Muslims don't like. That's one thing. I think what we're seeing here in this moral revolution is not healthy for our nation. The way this is being done is, is a difficult thing. But I want you to see that the way it's being framed and the way it's being framed puts it squarely into the courts and out of the representative part of our democracy. I think that's by design. I think it's very clever, but I think it's something we need to realize when we speak into these issues. I don't think you solve social issues in a democracy by imposing values in that way. So I'm going to move from there and I want to talk about then a biblical response to that. And I want to talk about it first. You're going to bear with me because I know you want to know how do we vote on this. And I want to talk to you about how we do it in a political sense, but I want to talk to you about a personal sense first because I think this is really important. I want to talk to you about two people who uh, have a same-sex orientation and they are Christians. They are not gay in their identifying themselves and living that lifestyle, but they have a same-sex orientation. And I want you to hear from them. I recommend these books, by the way. Ed Shaw says this, our society has this narrative. Our society, the only route to true intimacy has become sex. That is indeed what our secular society, the message that it sends, everything from beer commercials to modern family on TV, 
It's a sexualized culture, and it basically sends the message the only way to have true intimacy is with sex. And the consequences for someone like me, he says, sound pretty tragic. Saying no to sex, being true to the biblical requirement of not engaging in those acts, he said, has basically said no intimacy for me. That's the cultural narrative. Now, his point is the church speaks a different narrative. And that's what I want to talk about is identity. We need to speak three things into our culture about this. One is that you are not defined by your sexual orientation. It's real, but it does not define you. Christians define themselves. We find our identity in Jesus Christ, who God says we are, who God is making us to be. And so this idea of identity, we have a powerful story to tell because I think this idea of intimacy and sex are the same thing is a huge distortion of human relations. And I don't think it's playing out very well in our culture. So we have a powerful message to talk about it in identity. You can find a wholeness in Christ and it really doesn't, you do not have to be defined by any of our sinning. We do not have to be defined by our sexuality. We do not have to be defined by any our family of origin. We do not have to be defined by our lust or our greed. Is that Jesus Christ came to set us free, to make us new creations. That's a powerful story that our culture desperately needs to hear. The second, Sam Alberry, I'd recommend any of the books that he's written. He's a pastor, has a same-sex orientation, does not identify himself as gay, the way I'm using that term, meaning I do not live that lifestyle, that is not going to define me, but that is his orientation. He says, if we feel the gospel is unfair to same-sex attracted people, and this is one of the common cultural things, it says, look, it's not fair. If you're same-sex attracted and you're a Christian, then you can't have sex. What's the point of life? Again, back to what Ed Shaw said. If you buy that narrative, this is compelling. But here's what Sam Albury says. He says, I don't buy that narrative at all. He says, because if we think that's the case, we have not evaluated the cost of discipleship in our own lives. The first thing we have to speak into the culture is identity. You do not have to be identified by what somebody labels somebody else puts on you. You can be identified in Christ. The second is empathy. And that is a believer who has a same-sex orientation a believer who has gender dysphoria. Dysphoria means distress. Basically, it means I'm feeling conflict in myself between my biological sex and my experience of gender. Believers in Christ who battle with those things are no different than believers in Christ who battle with lust and greed and pride. What Sam Albury is observing is such a biblical idea, and that is... Every one of us is broken spiritually. But the conclusion is not, well, well, then let's just all have our own sin and we'll all be good. That's not the conclusion. The conclusion is we must all do what Jesus said. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And he said, when you do, I make you a new creation and I give, give you the full life. So what he's saying is, is that we need to have empathy instead of you are same-sex attracted people. You are transgendered people. Sam Albury's saying, and yes, and you are greedy people, and you are gossipy people, and you are this. He said, that argument by our culture falls apart when we have the humility to say every single one of us has to surrender something to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Empathy 
It's going to break down walls and it's going to speak truth in a way that's also kind. And then thirdly, as this, I've shown you this before, this truth and compassion index. A lot of times this is where we stand. If we're all truth, and believe me, we need to stand for truth. Jesus Christ did. We will not compromise on truth. None of us who are Christ followers compromise on truth. But if that's all we're speaking into the culture, then we sound condemning. If all we're speaking is compassion, it's like, oh, everybody's really okay, then we're compromising. And where you see, as we look into our Bibles and we look at our example, Jesus Christ, this is where you see the cross. High compassion and high truth. Is that possible for us to do? I'm going to suggest to you it's very possible for us to do. We can speak a different way of finding our identity. We can speak with empathy to everyone who's struggling with any temptation because we all are surrendering something to Jesus Christ. In my case, you have a whole list of things you have to surrender. And then thirdly, we have compassion. Jesus tended to view people as lost rather than evil. Now, he's not foolish. He understands there are evil in the world. There are evil people in the world. When we talked about terrorism. We talked about Christians believe in the reality of evil, not just misguided people that are blowing other people up. But Jesus treated people when he came to them one-on-one -on -one as lost sheep rather than evil, meaning he gave people the benefit of the doubt and said, you know what? You too are looking for a place to go. I'm going to tell you on this issue. Now I'm going to narrow this down back to uh, gender and sexuality issues. Folks that are wrestling with same-sex orientation, people that are experiencing a gender dysphoria, I'm just going to narrow that. You can say this about everything else, but I really want us to have more of a heart about this is in general what you find is people in that situation feel very alone. They feel very alone because it feels like a sin that's been stigmatized differently than other sins. And sometimes the church, the church has sinned in my view. I think we have sinned in that we have made people wrestling with that feel other. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not compromising the truth, but I'm not going to compromise about our pride and our greed or anything else either. There's a certain humility that Jesus had when he said, look, we're not okay with our sin, but I understand what you're struggling with and I'll bet you feel alone. And here's something that really hit me. This is a phrase that I heard uh, from someone in this situation and said, basically, I never really thought that there was a path for me to get to God. And I think that's where we, like Jesus, need to engage people and say, yes, there is a path for you to get to God. And that's whether you've been divorced and turn away from that. That's whether you have greed and you want to sacrifice that and have the spirit take that or same-sex orientation. You fill in the blank with anything. But I think we need to have that compassion. So we want to speak personally with identity, a different narrative of what identifies us, who we really are. We're new creations in Christ. We're created in the image of God. And God has good in mind for us. And the Spirit will prune us. And we, our destiny, Romans 8, 28, we are destined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so that's possible for any one of us who will repent and surrender ourselves to Christ. That's our identity. Secondly, the empathy. No more us and them. We need to stop speaking us and them. There are just a lot of people out there that need to hear this, and it doesn't really help for us to throw people into buckets. I realize that's being done to Christians, and Jesus said, pray for your enemies then. Don't retaliate. Let's just go speak truth and compassion, and then finally compassion. So this part, I'm really I know this doesn't help you figure out how to vote, but this is 
absolutely huge. I want you to really think about that. And I know it's a, big, it's a little bit of a hill to climb because I know you're wrestling with, well, wait a minute, we've got to speak truth because these things are sin. Yes, and we need to have compassion because we all have something to sacrifice. We can empathize. We can all say, come this way with me. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll leave that, but I really want you to think about that. I think that's going to have a huge impact on our ability to engage this culture. Don't, don't think of this culture as all hostile voices. The majority of voices out there are hurting voices, not hostile voices. Okay, voting. Talk about that for a second. On the public side forward, I want to talk about this. First of all, here's a principle. This did not used to be true, but it is now. Voting for a candidate is not endorsing a candidate. Because if that's the case, probably everybody's staying home. And I mean that statistically because never in my experience, now I can't prove this is true, but I'll tell you in my experience have I ever found ourselves in a situation where both presidential candidates have a higher than 50% unfavorable rating. I mean, that just floors me as a, you know, as a math major and having a couple of math degrees. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. What that says to me is whoever gets elected, the majority of people will be unhappy. How's that work? <laughs> Used to be you voted for a candidate you embrace that candidate. That is not the way politics in America works, and I don't think that's the way we should approach it. Voting for a candidate or party is not endorsing that candidate. I predict to you that if you read, let's just pick the Democrats and Republicans, if you read the, the platform of those two parties, you're going to identify, depending on your affiliation, you're going to identify more with one than the other. You will not completely agree with either one of those. And so voting for a candidate is not endorsing a candidate. And the key for us, I think, is to prioritize issues and vote accordingly. And here's why I say that. It's because if we, we have no opportunity to influence the trajectory of this nation for the good of the kingdom, if we do not participate, we have the right to participate. I believe we have an obligation to participate. And we have to participate in a way that tries to move the kingdom agenda, God's business forward in some sense. You need to decide what that issue is. We'll give you one from what we were talking about, and we've tried to identify some of the issues uh, throughout this series. But one here is, and actually I'm going to show you this quote. I agree with this very much. Those who maintain their beliefs about marriage should be respected, not punished. So in other words, religious liberty, non-discrimination need to be more balanced than simply coercion and squelching. They need to be respected, not punished. And religious organizations should not be forced to revise their beliefs or practices as the price for maintaining tax exemption, accreditation, et cetera, eligibility to compete for federal grants. These are all forms of coercion, and I think we should resist coercion, and the way on this issue is simply to vote the issue of preserving religious liberties. It's a fundamental American principle, and I believe it's one, in my view, that will help move kingdom values forward a little bit. Again, if you have four or five issues that you think are the key issues for moving this country in a positive direction, you may not find a candidate that has all of those. But we need to decide what our key issues are, and we need to try to influence those the best we can. Some people think that many of these issues will be wrapped up, for example, in Supreme Court. Currently have a 4-4, uh, liberal and uh, conservative. Uh, you can slice this a lot of different ways, but you basically have a 4-4 split. And so whoever names the ninth justice, because remember what I said, how are these issues being decided in our nation right now? 
I think regrettably, they have tended to be framed in a way that they're decided by a very few people. Well, if that is the case, then those nine people are very important. And so I know that some people are saying the best way to move this forward is to vote to have that respect the values that I hold. Whatever that issue is for you, I think we need to identify it. I think we just need to realize that voting for a uh, a candidate does not mean endorsing a candidate. It means I'm trying to move these issues forward in a constructive way, not just for us, but for the kingdom, and not just because Christians over other people. We believe that God's values cause all human beings to flourish. You see all those statistics I showed you about the moral revolution? I believe that if we will do things God's way, we can turn that around. I think people will flourish. Questions? I have a whole bunch of questions um, that are things that probably were best addressed in the sexuality series, and I just wanted you to let people know that that's available. might help with answering questions about a lot of the things that I have questions on. We did a Wednesday night series on uh, sexuality, and we just got into a lot more detail on specific things. This just take a little different direction, but those are all available online. I mean, all the Wednesday night series, are you can see the video online, and uh, you might check that out and see if we got to more detailed answers. Yeah, it's called sexu- online, it's called Sexuality, a Biblical Perspective. Sexuality, a Biblical Perspective, yep. Good. All right, well, in summary then, let's go back and see what we've talked about. Basically, uh, these issues, the key takeaways for me, things I'd like you to think about, is this. We are not, the biblical worldview is not the majority worldview in the public square in America. It used to be, it is not any longer. There is a moral revolution underway, and it's a moral revolution that is progressing very rapidly. It is an unhealthy revolution, and when I say unhealthy, I mean not just because it disagrees and basically is rebellious to God's principles, I think it's actually unhealthy for human flourishing in our nation. It's not good for anyone in our nation. So there's a moral revolution that's under the way. The way this moral revolution is being implemented is by pitting some of our rights against other rights. And it's being implemented through the courts rather than through the legislatures and hearing more from the people. The Christian response, the biblical response, and put it this way, the biblical response is first of all and foremost has to be on a personal level. Has to be on a personal level. We as a church have to preach a message of identity that is more healing. We have to have empathy for people who are struggling with certain issues while we struggle with other. We have a community together of all being sinners who are turning toward God and sacrificing our sin, nailing it to the cross. And then finally, compassion. The less we speak us and them and the more we engage people as people. That's why I wanted you to understand this broad spectrum. It's easy to say, well, you're gay or you're transgendered or it's not yours. They are this and they are that. People are on a broad spectrum in that situation and need to be engaged with compassion. That's what we're called to do. Politically, I think we are called to participate in our system, and since our system allows us to vote, I think we need to vote the issues that we think will move kingdom values forward. So I hope that's given you a few things to think about. My goal is always you walk away learning something uh, maybe that you didn't know before, but especially being challenged to say, how would the Bible have us move forward in this situation? 
and let's talk about the totality of that. And sometimes that causes us to get into an uncomfortable place. We have to take some risk with our safety and our security, and we want our country to be this way. We'd like to legislate our morality into law. I'm not a fan of legislating morality because I don't think you can legislate morality. I'm also not a fan of voting sin into public policy. So I think we need to speak and vote our values, but I don't think we need to be disillusioned when not all the laws in America reflect God's values. That's the opportunity to go spread the gospel in this nation. This is still the greatest nation on earth, and God willing, and with our participation, it will remain so and continue to do God's business in the world. Well, next, in our final session, I want to talk about the politics of life and death. This one's really pretty interesting, and you think in America, well, this is kind of settled. It's really not. You're seeing a lot of new developments in the idea of euthanasia and assisted suicide around the world and even in America. And I'd like to talk about the politics of life and death. Specifically, when you get into the human rights arena, where do my rights end and your rights begin? And what do we do in the overlap? So that's what we'll talk about next week. I hope to see you there. Thanks, guys.